More than a year ago, when the pandemic hit, I knew that we were going to need four things if we were going to get through this together. We would need a spirit of generosity. We would need patience. We would need discipline. And we'd need people to understand fractions. Well, maybe we can get three out of four, but the purpose of this podcast is to help you with the fourth one. Hey, it's Seth, and this is Akimbo. We'll be back in a second to talk about something that most people don't understand, but that's not that hard, fractions. But first, here's a message from our sponsor. Creative isn't who you are. It's what you do. Along the way, creativity has gotten a mystical rap, as if it's some sort of gift. It's not. It's a choice. It's a skill. If you have a job where you get to decide what you do, you are a creative, a working creative, and you can get better at it. I'm thrilled to say that the Creatives Workshop is back, the most active of all the Akimbo workshops. It's about people who want to level up and make a difference with their creative work. I hope you'll check it out. Visit akimbo.com slash go for all the upcoming workshops. Go make a ruckus. In a previous episode, I talked about the tragedy of exaggerating small differences, that when we expose large groups of people to supposedly rigorous tests based on supposed scarcity and pick the few that supposedly measure just a little bit better. We don't make things any better. We make them worse because small differences aren't worth exaggerating. However, when it comes to percentages, which is just a form of a fraction, we're doing the opposite, and we do the opposite all the time. I put up a spreadsheet at akimbo.link in the show notes. You can find it there, but you don't need to look at a spreadsheet to understand what we're going to go over today, you don't even need to stop driving. It comes down to two questions that I want to dissect. The first one is this. Some people say, why should we bother with an intervention that has a 90% success rate when 99% of the people recover on their own? Well, first of all, 99% of the people might not die, but we have no idea how long the after effects of COVID are. But I'll grant you 99%. Let's just use that as a number right now to start understanding what happens when we do percentages of percentages, what happens when fractions bump into fractions. If 99% of the people recover, that means that once everyone in the U.S., is afflicted with COVID at some level or another, which will happen thanks to epidemiology. We know this. That means that approximately 3 million Americans will die. That's a huge number. If any other disease or a meteorite strike had a number like that, everyone would be paying attention. 99% sounds like a great survival rate unless you're one of the 1%. Okay, so now we say, but it doesn't matter if there's a 90% efficacy rate if 99% of the people recover. Well, when we start looking at fractions, it feels like that's appropriate, but it's not. What you have to do is not compare fractions to one another. You have to look at the base. 
So if we've got 300 million people in a population, and of course around the earth, it's far, far more than that. I'm just picking the country where I know the numbers off the top of my head. And for people in other places, particularly India, who are so under this, my heart goes out to you. But for now, we're going to say 99%. If we have an intervention like a vaccine that has a 90% efficacy, let's just use the number 90%. Again, we're not exactly sure, but 90% feels lower than my hunch. What does that mean? It means that instead of 3 million people dying, 300,000 people would die. It's a 10x increase. It means that we are able to save the lives of 2.7 million people. Because once you do the first bit of math, the 90%, then you have to do the second bit of math, the 99%, on the people who are left. And only by multiplying it out on the addressed population can you get to the truth of who is affected and who isn't. It is a no-brainer, even if it has a 50% efficacy rate. It is a no-brainer. It is one of the greatest medical interventions in human history if you can come up with a 50% efficacy rate on something that has a 99% survival rate. Okay, second question that arrived in my inbox this morning. Someone said to me, why should I bother getting the second vaccine if it's only going to increase the efficacy by 15%? To go from 80% to 95%, why bother with the second shot? And the way many people are thinking about this is simple. If you get an 80% in a course you don't like in school, it's fine. Don't sweat it. 80%, don't worry about it. Going to 95%, not worth the extra time. 80% is good enough. But again, let's do the numbers. If there's 1,000 people in your town and there's an 80% efficacy rate, it means 200 people are going to get sick. If there's a 95% efficacy rate, it means that 50 people are going to get sick, from 200 to 50. So when we go from 80 to 95%, we're not going up by 15%. We're coming up with an intervention that is four times more beneficial to the population. Four times. If we could go to 99%, wow, at 99%, we go from 200 to 10. The math speaks for itself. There are two problems the public has with public health. The first one is science doesn't look good when you look at it in real time. That if you look at all of the work that went into finding the polio vaccine, oh, let's go left, let's go right, let's go up, let's go down. Oh, finally, we found it. We forget all of that after science has demonstrated its method. It's a little bit like driving around your neighborhood the first week after you move in. You get lost all the time. And then after a few weeks, you know exactly where you're going. The problem with science being on the front page of the newspaper every day is simple. We're getting to see how it's made. And science is about failing and failing and failing on our way to getting it right. And then the second problem that humans have with public health is that public health, by its nature, deals with very large numbers of people people who might not be you in any given situation over longer periods of time, and it involves fractions. And so public health gets us 
fluoridated water. Public health gets us sewers. Public health gets us the idea that doctors should wash their hands before they do surgery. Public health is a miracle. If you could trade places with somebody from 1800 or 1600 or 1400 or, yes, a thousand years ago, you'd freak out in about 30 seconds because public health is one of the triumphs of our time and we take it all for granted. And the folks who do public health, along with epidemiologists, they understand things like r not and fractions and the normal distribution and percentages and large populations and the fact that 80-year-olds are not the same as 20-year-olds, though they might end up breathing the same air. So I am not asking anybody to take these folks at their word. I'm asking them to do the math because the math speaks for itself. Thanks for listening. Here's to good health, optimism, and possibility. We'll see you next time. We'll be back in a second with a couple of questions from previous episodes. But first, here's a message from our sponsor. When is it time to level up? When is it time to learn a new way to see the world, to connect with others, to lead, to engage in possibility? Akimbo is a B Corp, an independently owned and operated institution designed around learning, not education, not certificates, not grades, but learning together. It works if you do the work. I hope you'll check out what the people at Akimbo are up to. Visit akimbo.com slash go to find out about their new upcoming workshops and how it all works. Thanks. Hey, Seth. It's Maria. Hey, Seth. My name's Kyle. Greetings, Seth. This is Stephen out in Madison, Wisconsin. Hi, Seth. Alicia from Charleston here. Hi, Seth. This is Anupam. Hi, this is Caitlin. Hi, Seth. Warm greetings from Curacao. Hey, Seth. My name is Nick Ryan from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Hey, Seth. This is Rex. Hey, Seth. Hi, this is Vasilis from Greece. Hi, this is Roberta Perry. My question is... And that completes my question. As you know, I love to hear from you. If you got a question about this or any previous episode, about fractions, about marketing, about status, I hope you'll visit akimbo.link. That's A-K-I-M-B-O dot L-I-N-K and click the appropriate button. Two questions about status this week. They couldn't be more different and they couldn't be more alike. Hey, Seth. This is Brendan from Montreal. The question I have for you is how can we use status roles to better allocate the talent of our society to work on meaningful problems. There's two thoughts that came to mind as I thought about this question. The first one is the way in how this generation is a lot less likely to want to work in the government, whereas that's a very important sector where people need to take jobs in, and we're losing a lot of our best talent to other areas and other professions that the culture incentivizes us to do and rewards us for it like being a fin financier on Wall Street, like being a lawyer, like being a doctor. That's one piece. The other piece is how the culture doesn't particularly promote blue-collar jobs either as a very good way to make a living, as a way to move up the status role, as you argue in many of your episodes, like being an electrician or being a plumber. So going back to this, how, how do you think we can use status roles to better allocate the talent of our society so that we can work on meaningful problems and get things solved? Uh, looking forward to getting your thoughts. Thanks so much, Seth. Thank you for this. It's a really important insight. And I think it's worth a minute to understand how we got here. Because 500 years ago, money hardly was a guarantee of status. 
Perhaps you were in the clergy. Perhaps you were a soldier in ancient Sparta. Perhaps you were royalty. These weren't things that came from money, though money might come to you because you had this sort of status. Perhaps you were the most important woman in the village. Perhaps you were the best athlete. There's lots of things that give human beings status, and money is a fairly new one. Here's the thing that money has going for it that's being repeated over and over again by the chieftains of public companies who are being paid millions and millions of dollars a month and by places like Goldman Sachs that move money from one pile to another. The narrative is pretty simple, which is there's only one dimension. Milton Friedman told us what it is. Make as much money as possible. It doesn't matter if that person is immoral or unethical. It doesn't matter if they cheat. It doesn't matter if they're tall. It doesn't matter if they know how to play billiards. All that matters is that they made a lot of money, that we have been brainwashed into believing that rich and good or that rich and high status might be the same thing. And then we overlay on that celebrity, which is also brand new, 100, 200 years old. And celebrity often gets rewarded with money. Money sometimes gets rewarded with celebrity. And again, it's just on one axis. Well, current events, a renewed overdue focus on social justice, on treating people fairly, on behavior in the workplace is waking up a lot of people. And they're saying, well, maybe it's not sufficient that you made a lot of money. So the pendulum swings one way or another. But to get to your question, the challenge is to elevate people who have made the selfless decision to do service and not to always add an asterisk to it about whether it's enough service, about whether they're perfect enough, about whether their entire background is without reproach. You'd have to be crazy to run for mayor or senator or president or premier or member of parliament because the media is just waiting to eat you up. It doesn't matter that you're doing a lot of good. What matters is you're not perfect and none of us are. I'm certainly not. And so the challenge and the way we get around the challenge is by going out of our way to see and to elevate people who are doing things for the right reason, who are doing things with care and kindness to make things better for people around them, not simply the short-term interests of their shareholders. I don't have a magic wand or I can't just wave my hand and tell you how we can fix this. What I can say is the culture gets what it rewards. And we need to figure out how to make it so that Yale students don't think the thing they're supposed to do is go to Wall Street. And we have to figure out how to create cycles of when we talk about what we do at a cocktail party, the people who are actually doing something that benefits more of us get more of our attention. So thank you for noticing it. And all I can hope is that one of the side effects, the byproducts of this interruption, this tragedy we've all been living through, is that maybe we're going to take a deep breath and measure something else. Hi, Seth. My name is Pat Kelly, and I run a wedding music and DJ company in the Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, USA area. And my twin brother and I perform live music and DJ for weddings. And in listening to two different episodes that you have, A Wedding Industrial Complex, and then the episode called A Complex of Complexes more recently, I had two questions for you. 
Number one, we run a boutique wedding service and we really focus on the creative side of what we do and the artist side of what we do. And that attracts a lot of couples that like what we do. So number one, how do we attract more artists and more creatives that want to do something similar? How do we build groups of people that want to enter the wedding industry, even knowing that they might have to perform or play some music that they might not necessarily choose to, but knowing that they would be able to make a living much better than maybe other sides of the music industry overall. And number two, how do we grow a company in a complex? Because there are complexes that we all know of, but growing a company in something that is big and, and, you know, has a lot of moving parts and that we don't necessarily understand all of it. How do we grow a company in a complex without losing the essence of who we are and what we do? I appreciate all that you do. I appreciate the time that you take to answer these questions and have a great day. So yes, you've guessed it. This is another question about status. And to restate it, why would a musician hesitate to play weddings if it's going to help them make a living? And the answer is they didn't become a musician to make a living. They, they became a musician because they were looking for a certain kind of status. So how would I reverse engineer this? Well, maybe I would use a little bit of the profit your organization makes to put on a multi-band concert on a regular basis now that we're getting out of our homes. And maybe the only people who are allowed to perform at this prestigious nightclub, at this outdoor festival, the only ones you invite to perform are the ones who also gig with your agency or somebody else who's doing weddings. That the price of being seen, of getting on your sampler record, of being promoted on Spotify, of having a live crowd bigger than you're used to, the price is you also have to pay your dues by playing weddings. You're not going to be able to elevate the status of the wedding band. That's too much work for one organization. But what you might be able to do is elevate the status of musicians who care enough about their work to also gig at weddings. And my hunch is that this might lead to more gigs for all of you. Because what many people who are getting married look for when they're doing their insanely expensive weddings is celebrity. And so if you have celebrity bands, because you made them celebrities, they might be even easier for you to book. And as for working within a complex, once you see the complex, you are working with the complex. And that plays into exactly what you need. So you look around and say, what do the florists want? What do the brides want? What do the grooms want? What does the mother or the parent of the bride want? What does the venue want? Everybody in this system wants something. And if you make it easy for them to get what they want, they're significantly more likely to do business with you. Almost every shift that we have seen in the wedding industrial complex has happened because whoever brought that shift forward did it in a way that helped so many of the other players. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time. I just don't think it's possible or probable in, in today's world to distinguish yourself 
as an educational institution or as a success seeker at the level of, of information gathering or information distribution. I mean, this is the information age and you can get a great book, a great essay, a great idea anywhere, you know, and none of us can do that better than the internet, right? Um, there is no great thought leader who can outthink the internet. Like we have data. What all MBA gets right is it puts you in a context where you're part of a community that says, yeah, 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 that's good. You got access to ideas, you got access to information. That's awesome. But when are you going to show up? When are you going to face that blank page? When are you going to face the possibilities within you? When are you going to face those fears? I'm not going to let you hide. You got to show up. And that's the hardest part. And it sounds simple. It sounds very commonsensical, but it's the number one reason why we don't write that book. It's the number one reason why we don't ask that question. It's not because we don't know or we don't have the information. We don't have an environment and we don't have a support network that makes it feel like showing up is possible for me. Not just possible for the success stories I see out there, but I can show up. Consider the Alt-MBA. More than 3,000 alumni in 74 countries around the world. Find out more at altmba.com.